This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The challenges of baseball legend and one-time home run king, Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron got these threats, and they were credible because, and here's why, he'd seen Dr. King assassinated. He'd seen two Kennedys assassinated, Malcolm X. Harold Reynolds, former Major League Baseball All-Star, breaks it down. Assassinations were real in that time. So when somebody's threatening him, he knows that is viable. That is real. Coming up in this episode of Colors. His name is Cortland Cox, one of the early members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It's Black History Month, and boy does he have a story to tell. I was the program secretary for the organization at one point. I also was the SNCC representative to the March on Washington. So I was one of the people who helped organize the March on Washington. And he lays out the difference between violence in the 60s and today. When I, in the 1960s, violence was so pervasive, both from the, the, the non-police community and the police community, that, I mean, we looked at the watch, watch line reports that we, we used to keep. It was, I mean, you know, maybe you have three or four incidents a day here during this time, you'd have 40 during that time. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm Black. And this is Colors. Well, Chris, this is the first Thursday of February 2021. February is always, as people recognize it in the general population, is Black History Month. But as we say here on Colors, Black History Month is every day. Every, every, every podcast is Black <laughs> History Month, that's for sure. Yeah, and we have... One of the most uh, intriguing people that I can think of to, to kick us off this month. And uh, I want to introduce him to everyone. But first, I want to welcome Mr. Cortland Cox. Uh, he uh, was raised in New York City, spent his childhood between New York and Trinidad. And um, he later in his life uh, went to Howard University right here in Washington. And he joined the Nonviolent Action Group. Uh, and uh, he met classmates like Stokely Carmichael, Michael Thelwell, Gene Wheeler, Ed Brown, and others. And he participated in sit-ins along Route 40, the Freedom Rides, and demonstrations on Maryland's eastern shore. And he got involved with the organization called SNCC, and that is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And it is quite an honor, Mr. Cox, to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much. First thing I'd like to do is to ask you, 
What was your role with SNCC? What did you do? I know that you were very uh, heavily involved in the leadership. What role did you play with that organization? I was the program secretary for the organization at one point. I also was the SNCC representative to the March on Washington. So I was one of the people who helped organize the March on Washington. I also participated in the 1964 Freedom Summer, uh, which um, brought into life the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and also participated in uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Uh, after I left that, I came to Washington, D.C., and we opened up the Drum and Spear Bookstore and the Drum and Spear Press. Mm -hmm. So some people who were back here in Washington in 1968 uh, would remember the Drum and Spear Bookstore in particular. I can't... Um... I can't say uh, enough about the work that you did with SNCC, but I think a lot of people may not know what that SNCC was all about. Would you just give us a brief primer on what SNCC was and what its mission was? Yeah. SNCC was a group of students, just like some of the young activists today. We were generally between the ages of 17 and 22 when we started. Uh, SNCC started on February 1st, 1960, and was really came together as part, as a result of the sit-ins that took place on February 1st, 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, where four AT&T students decided that they were not gonna take segregation in public accommodations anymore. In 1960, and most people don't remember that, it was not, I mean, a black person that could not go in to a, a restaurant and be served. They had to take it out. And in fact, in Washington, D.C., you found the same thing. I mean, we had places like Clifton Terrace was segregated. There were probably only two black restaurants in, in the whole of Washington. In a number of places in Washington and the department stores, you couldn't try on clothes before you bought them. Uh, you know, the police was segregated. The, the city was segregated. I mean, so... I mean, it wasn't only the South. I mean, we not, while I was at Howard, I did a number, uh, conducted a number of demonstrations right here in Washington, in addition to Route 40 and the Eastern Shore of Maryland. So, I mean, we started trying to fight segregation in public accommodations and transportation. So, I mean, so we were part of the Freedom Rides and trying to make sure that you could, Black people, could ride in the front of a bus as we went south, or could you know be treated equally in um, in in public transportation and and public accommodations. So that's the way we started. We continued to deal with the question of voter registration, where black people could not vote across the south, and that for even if they tried to vote. They had poll taxes, which they had to pay. They had tests that they had to take that they couldn't pass. The tests would ask things like, you know, I mean, really impossible questions that amounted to how many seeds in the watermelon or how many bars in the bubble of soap. Yeah. So I, I think I think that's what we started. I mean, America mm -hmm. was a totally segregated country. Uh, and that we decided that as young people, I was 19 at the time, we were not going to take segregation and what, you know, America had uh, 
presented to us. And I think a lot of that came while I was 19 and the SNCC people were, were at the same age generally. The people who really started it were the World War II veterans who decided that if they were going to fight for freedom abroad, they were going to fight for freedom at home. So, I mean, I think we're the second wave, we're the second generation who came after the people in World War II, like Medgar Evers and Amzie Moore and other people like that. Well, um, uh, this is Chris. And um, from this end, just let me wish you a, a belated happy birthday. I know you recently had a round number that we don't have to say here, right. but, but congratulations. I know <laughs> what it is. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I bring that up because uh, I'm a few years behind you, but not that many years. I remember SNCC. I was in college uh, when SNCC was coming around, so I remember it very well. Uh, but, but get JJ started off by talking about this being Black History Month. So let me just ask you, what is Black history and why is it important for all of us to study it? I think... You know, one of the things that uh, one of the real tragedies of America in terms of segregation and slavery, the Americans try, I mean, and this happened across the board, try to portray that, you know, Africans contributed nothing to civilizations and African-Americans contribute nothing and that we were basically subpar and subhumans. And based, and so what happened is Carter G. Woodson, who right here in Washington, D.C., started out Negro History Week uh, to say to America, Black people and Africans have contributed to civilization. We have made, we, we have a deep culture and we have, you know, we are not the people that you portray us. So for years, I mean, it's right there on 9th Street, uh, he carried out, you know, the, the campaign to uh, make America and black, particularly black people in America, understand that they had a history that they should be proud of. And then after, I would say in the 1960s and some point like that, it went from being Negro History Week to uh, Negro History Month and then Black History Month and then African American History Month. So the importance of this month is to remind everyone in America of the great contributions that have been made by African-Americans and people of African descent in the world. Mr. Cox, when you saw what played out last summer with George Floyd's death on that street in Minneapolis and the protest that swept the nation after that, how did that compare in your mind to what you and your uh, comrades had gone through back in the 60s and later. And did you see any difference? Did you see any progress between then and now? I mean, I, I think the big difference between, you know, when I was coming along and, and when I said coming along, the, the age of the, the young people, who the young lady who was 17 years who took the, 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 uh, with, took the pictures with a camera. I mean, we had both the police which we have today, and we also had vigilantes. So I, I think the big difference in between the two times is you no longer have the kind of vigilantism that you had in, in, um, in the 1960s and the 1950s and the 1940s, but you still, and, and the, the number of police incidents 
uh, is, has narrowed. So at least you know the name of the, the people who are, are doing things. I mean, the, when I, in the 1960s, violence was so pervasive, both from the, the, the non-police community and the police community that, I mean, we looked at the watch, watch line reports that we, we used to keep. It was, I mean, you know, maybe you have three or four incidents a day here during this time, you'd have 40 during that time. So my sense is, you know, um, and the other difference is that you knew automatically, like for example, when Emmett Till was killed, you knew automatically whatever happened, I mean, no, no jury was gonna convict and nothing would last for more than an hour. Today, at least there is, let's say, you know, some black attorney uh, generals, some, you know, people who are white who understand that this is wrong in terms of, you know, what should be happening to citizens. So at least there's some cracks in that, that discussion. But in the days that when I was dealing with it, there were no cracks. Now there are some cracks and at least people couldn't be considered to be brought to justice for acts that they commit. That's very interesting. Um, I, I, just as a, a point of personal interest, uh, and we're talking about black history, mm. you knew Stokely Carmichael. Right. I knew about Stokely Carmichael. Uh, tell me, what, he, what was he like? Stokely was a very smart and generous person. Uh, he, as you know, I, I, I grew up in Trinidad, but he was born in Trinidad. Uh, he went to the Bronx High School of Science, which was a school for gifted students in, in New York City. And at, even in the age of discrimination, he was able to, to go to Bronx High School of Science. He was a, 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 a student in the dean's list at Howard University. He chose to go to Howard University as opposed to the Ivy League schools that he could go to. He had tremendous energy and he was a very personable person. And so basically, he was one of the, the best organizers SNCC had. When I say organizers, that is to say, he was able to live into, in the communities in the rural South, even though he was born in New York and grew up in New York. He was able to relate to people in the rural South and he was able to get them to put their lives on the line to go to register to vote, to participate in the American democracy. But I it, think it, for it, him- it, Huh? Am I right that he first coined the, the phrase black power? Yes, he did. I was just about to get to that. Discussion. Oh, sorry. So my sense is that having spent all that time in the South and we were working in Lowndes County, you know, a, Lowndes County, right after the Selma to Montgomery March, uh, Lowndes County is between Selma, the Dallas County and Montgomery County, I mean, and Macon County. And it's 80% black. And there were no black people registered to vote. And one of the things we realized is that if we should not only just exercise our right to vote, we should exercise our right to hold office and to have power. So we organized to put black people in positions of power, not just to vote. But the other thing that, I mean, so that, that was his mindset as that's the, the, the frame of reference he had as he started talking about black power. But one of the things that he recognized in terms of, of this country 
is that unless black people had the, 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 the power to control the way they thought about themselves, unless they had the power to define who they were, unless they had the power to decide what was right and wrong, they were always going to be in a position of subjugation. So, I mean, when we were coming along, you know, nappy hair was considered bad. Black, you know, being a Negro, if somebody called you black in 1966, when Stokely talked about it, and not a Negro, you know, people were ready to fight. They were ashamed of themselves. People put, you know, natanola on their skins to brighten it. You know, they, they put, some mothers put clothespins on the nose of black people so that their nose wouldn't be as broad. We, we everything was, we had to be like white people because that white was good and black was bad. So, I mean, so basically the conversation to the black community was you need to define yourself. You need to have a sense of who you are. You need to define what was pretty, what was attractive, what was, you know, smart and whatever. You had to have that power in your own hands. So black people, once that statement was made, it, it spread like wildfire in the black community. The white community saw it as a threat because it fundamentally changed the relationship between the white community and the black community. Black people started asserting about who they are. So my sense, you have some of it going now with Colin Kaepernick, you know, yeah. in, in the yeah. in the football league. You saw what happened the other day when, you know, George Floyd got killed and all these black athletes said, we're going to stop. We're not going to play NBA. We're going to pay attention to what our issues are you know Naomi um, Osaka in in uh, in tennis? So my sense is that, or, or when you look at John Carlos and and Tommy Smith in in 1968 in in Mexico City, I mean, so black power was very important to the black community because we were able to assert ourselves, our sense of worth, and our sense of who we are in the world. You know, that is very interesting that you bring that up. And I want to know whether you think we're doing it now, whether we're asserting ourselves. Are we making any progress here? Because I see a lot of organizations getting involved and in engaging in uh, diversity and equity and inclusion seminars and, you know, people wholeheartedly, you know, people of all races are jumping on this this bandwagon and this idea of, okay, we need to be more aware, we need to do more things to make the playing field level. But I still see some of the same behavior from some of the same people that were engaged in all of that kind of behavior, some of which you mentioned, you know, before the wake-up call, before the woke call that a lot of people got with George Floyd. And I'm just wondering, do you see us making progress here? Yeah, I, I'm looking at two things. In the white community, I mean, I see in 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 white communities, you know, people standing up with signs saying Black Lives Matter. They're not at any demonstration. They're not in any place in the black community. They're their own communities talking to people who are like them. And, and the more affluent communities, I must say, it's, that's not, you know, every white community, but the more affluent community, you see people standing on the corner saying Black Lives Matter. But I think for me, 
the one the, the thing that's most important than what's happening is the way black people are impacting the national scene, the national political scene. And I think that, you know, probably if you're going to look at a place that has been most impactful, you have to look at Georgia. You have to look at what people like Ensei Ufort with the New Georgia Project or Stacey Adams with, I mean, Stacey Abrams with, with Fear Fight. You know, they're the people who are now helping to define I mean, their collective action are helping to define the politics of the United States. So they did so that Biden, even the the president at this point, had to acknowledge it was because of the organization of the black community, not only in Georgia, but in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in Wisconsin and places like that, that it made a fundamental difference in the way America is able to proceed, you know, politically and now economically, because absent the, the clear action of the black community in, in the 2020 elections, we would have a different environment here and a different environment that we could see what it happened on January 6th, but more profoundly, what is what we happening with the COVID virus and how many people would be killed because the level of incompetence of the previous administration is totally astounding. You know, um... So you, I asked you about somebody I had never met, and that was Stokely Carmichael, and it was a great answer. Now suddenly we, we, we both met. Um, I met him after you did, a uh, different time of his life. I met him in 1978. You met him earlier than that. Tell me your impression when you were young and first running around with Marion Barry. What was he like? Oh, Marion. Oh, look, I thought you were going to ask me about John Lewis. No. Well, John Lewis would be great, too, but I never okay, met John let's Lewis. Let's start with I Marion. Barry. I think Marion, as you may or may not know, was the first chairman of SNCC. Yes. Uh, and Marion, okay, as the audience may or may not know, Marion was a dissertation away from getting a PhD in chemistry. Yes. So, I mean, he was not a person. And Marion, I mean, I, I think... One of the things that Marion brought to Washington, D.C., uh, I mean, he was part, I mean, before he got to be mayor of Washington, he was part of Pride. He was he was helping. He was here in Washington working with SNCC, you know, because he was a SNCC member. And also Johnny Wilson and, Eli, I mean, and Eleanor Holmes Norton, they were all SNCC members. But I'm just saying, back to Marion, Marion was a person who was very much involved in the black community of Washington. When Marion, Marion was, I guess, Marion was the young person when I guess Walter Washington, Sterling Tucker, and he ran and he was able to, to use the organizing skills that he learned in SNCC to put together a victory where most people thought that Sterling Brown or Walter Washington would win. Um, now, so, I mean, I think Marion clearly was a person who did a number of things for Washington, D.C., particularly the black community. In Washington, D.C., the black business, the black professional community, I was thinking about the lawyers and the, 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 the tax people and, and, and other people like that, were not able to participate in the Washington business community. He was able to make sure 
that that community that was or oh, their community was that community was opened up for them so that because anybody who wanted to participate in the the political process in 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 the district of columbia he made sure that it was integrated and had people from the black community the other thing that was important that marion did when all these big banks and uh, firms, the investment firms came down to deal with bonds and stuff like that in terms of Washington, D.C., Marion told them, do not send anybody that doesn't look like me to talk to me about investing in Washington, D.C. Marion also was important. He also said that if we're going to have boards and commissions in Washington, D.C., People from each ward needs to be part of that. And so he spent a lot of time making sure that people were geographically integrated into the boards and commissions of Washington, D.C. He also spent a time, great deal, he spent a lot of time doing a lot of stuff with seniors and youth. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we he know, he's known for right now is the, the summer project, the youth summer project and giving them a head start in life in terms of giving them a direction. I mean, my sense is that, mm-hmm. you know, Marion had done all those things. Now, I mean, it's very clear that Marion had some personal problems, particularly with women, you know, and, you know, and, and therefore, you know, was able to be entrapped by, you know, uh, a situation where he was, you know, involved in smoking, you know, um, a cocaine or whatever. But I do think that, you know, I mean, it is very clear, you know, that the contributions of Marion, I mean, Marion had made a lot of, I mean, one of the things that Marion also did, and I had responsibility with it, is that he made sure that, you know, black businesses participated in the procurement opportunities for Washington, D.C. So my sense is that that is why you see, you know, right outside the district building, a statue of Marion Barry, because whatever people, I mean, while there are people who want to concentrate, and let me just say this last thing about Marion. So, you know, Marion, in the beginning, Marion tried to make sure that black businesses were able to participate in the economic life of Washington, D.C. And there were a number of things that Marion did in terms of really dealing with downtown real estate. Therefore, they started coming after Marion. The first time to try to go after Marion was Georgia Jennifer, who we now know who is a big supporter of Donald yes. Trump. Yes. He came after Marion and they tried to get Marion on stealing on and using abusing monies. And one of the things that was very clear that they never could get on Marion is Marion was never interested in money. But when they, the one Geneva, Geneva couldn't get him in money and the Washington Post kept saying, you got to get this guy. And he couldn't get him because there was no evidence. You know, they came back around on the uh, different uh, attorney, um, you know, district attorney to get him on what he was vulnerable with, the issue of women and drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a remarkable story because I got to meet Marion Barry um on a a number of occasions when I was working as a reporter in Washington. And um, interestingly enough, one day I was sitting in his office talking to him. And that very night he was arrested 
drugs. Charles Lewis, I think, was the guy that he was involved with, but none of that's important now. What's important is the the indelible uh, mark that he put on the civil rights movement, and he, along with you, uh, did that starting from the very beginning with the SNCC organization. You know, I was looking at some pictures of you and he sitting at a lunch counter in Atlanta at the Tottle House in 1963. Right, right. And there's another picture in that same collection. And another guy that I got to meet was Jim Foreman. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, he, I, I met him at the district building one day when I was a young reporter in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you knew him as well. But um, mm-hmm. in this picture, there's Jim Foreman, there's you, there's Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger. Oh, yeah, at the SNCC yeah, right, office right, in Mississippi, Greenwood, right. Mississippi. And I don't think a lot of folks know, maybe they do, maybe I didn't know, that SNCC had so much gravitas uh, in the international and, I guess, the entertaining or, or media community when you look at a guy like Dylan and Seeker, guys like them, with your engaging with your organization. Tell us how, how that relationship started. Yeah, I mean, you know, the picture you see, <clears throat> well, first of all, Jim, we considered, I mean, you know, it's interesting, you know, we considered Jim Foreman an old person, right? I mean, Jim was like <laughs> 32, 33, you know, uh, we could, you know, we considered, you know, he was up there with, with Martin King, I mean, in terms of age, but he was also a, 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 also a person who was well-educated and the person who really held the organization together. The picture you're referring to, it was probably in 1964 in, in, in Mississippi. And Pete Seeger and, and uh, Bob Dylan came down to be supportive of the work we're doing. I mean, and at that point, you know, a white person coming into Mississippi was a very, very bold move. And Bob Dylan was at the height of his creativity. I mean, he had done Blowing in the Wind, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. I mean, he was just, I mean, abs- I mean, but, I mean, clearly, we don't have to talk about his brilliance. I mean, it's just obvious. And they came to be supportive. And the thing I remembered about that meeting is the exchange of music that happened when you know, Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger sang, you know, the, their music and so forth. And then uh, the, the community started singing the Dr. Watts songs. It was a, a mm. fabulous event in terms of the, the whole rich culture of creativity and music by basically three. I mean, Pete Seeger was much older. Uh, and had been through, you know, the the Depression and World War II and McCarthy period, and he brought his creativity from there. Bob Dylan was bringing his creativity as a young man, seeing the world in a different way. And the, the people, the sharecroppers in Mississippi, were bringing their creativity out of their life's experience through segregation and the kinds of music and culture that kept them alive and kept them going and kept them sane. Uh, And I think I was very privileged to be in that environment and witness that whole environment because clearly the, the, the cultural richness of that event was astounding. And I wish we could have recorded it and kept it, but I mean, I mean, all we have is pictures. 
We've got you to tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember it. I was very, I mean, I mean, and, and I must say that Dylan and, uh, and Seager were very brave to, to come into Mississippi because, you know, in 1964, you know, they would kill you before they look at you. So, I mean, they were very brave in terms of doing all of that. Well, you know, I started off by saying, or you did, J.J., about mentioning this Black History Month. We just have an example of it. I learned a whole lot and some great stories <laughs> from Mr. Cox, and I'm, yeah. I'm just honored that you came on our podcast with us. Oh, no, I'm very pleased to do that. I think, you know, I think that, you know, people have been very kind to us and very kind to us when they were young. And when I say people, I'm talking about the generation that preceded us, the people like Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin mm -hmm. and A. Philip Randolph and people like that, Medgar Evers. And I think, you know, we have a responsibility to continue the stories because our responsibility are to the generations yet to come. Well, Mr. Cox, you know what? Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. You're listening to Colors. My name is Thetford Collins. I'm African-American. I grew up in South Arkansas. I now live in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I think that black history is important for a variety of reasons. Uh, I guess the best reason for me, though, is it that it helps give everybody in America an opportunity to know the full story of America. Uh, growing up in the South, the history that I got did not include anything about Black Americans and the contributions that Black Americans made. And there are a number of uh, contributions that Black Americans made to, uh, to this country that people just don't know about. Uh, for example, the way we ex extract blood for blood plaza was done by a Black man whose name is Dr. Charles Drew. Um, the many uses that we have for the peanut uh, were all uh, done by a black man named George Washington Carver, who gave us that first inst instance of what we could do with the peanut. So, you know, it's important that people know that black Americans have made significant contributions uh, to America, that they have an opportunity to know that uh, black Americans are a contributing part of America and have been since its founding. And I think that's the most important part of black history for me. Um, when you think about all of the things that uh, we know about uh, the Anglo-Saxons in our country and how little we know about the contributions of black Americans who came here uh, in bondage, but who have, as a result of having been given some opportunity or having fought for some opportunity, uh, have made significant contributions. And that's the importance of black history to me. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. JJ, I could sit and listen to Mr. Cox all afternoon long. That is a man that can tell. He's got stories to tell and he yeah. knows how to tell them. I <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed talking with him. Thank you so much for arranging that. Yeah, we'll see what we have to look forward to when we get 80. We have stories. We can talk about <laughs> well, him. I hope, if I have stories to tell, I certainly hope that I can tell them as well as he did. Because, you know, the, the, the Marion Barry thing, and I brought that up for a very – the reason he went to where I wanted him to go about Marion Barry, because a lot of people – 
Marion Barry is infamous for what happened later in his life, but not early on. I met him in 1978. I voted for him uh, when he ran for mayor. And he is the reason that for those people who don't who listen who don't live in Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania Avenue is just an absolutely stunning, beautiful, beautiful street now. And it is partly because of Marion Barry, a lot to do because of Marion Barry. When I first came to Washington in 1971, it was scary to drive on Pennsylvania Avenue uh, because it was run down. It was there were, you know, the, the parts that had been burned out during the 60 riots were still there. It was just liquor stores. It was terrible. And Marion Barry said, no, this is America's Main Street. And when he became mayor in 1978 or nine, uh, he started working with a white developer named Oliver Carr Mm -hmm. and they worked on developing Pennsylvania Avenue. And it is, you know, honestly, you know, would it have happened eventually? Yeah, I guess. But I mean, he's very responsible for saving Pennsylvania Avenue from urban blight. So uh, he did a lot of good in his early on before the, the drugs and the, and the women. Yeah. You know, the, thing that a lot of people miss or never knew is what Mr. Cox said. Marion Barry was a really smart guy. I I remember one of the very first things that I learned about him. He went to Fisk University. One of the very first things that I learned about him was that he was basically a PhD in chemistry. He just never, as as Mr. Cox mentioned, never did that dissertation. But everything that it took to get to that point was done. And this chemistry is not a simple, not a simple discipline. Um, and, you know, but he was really good at, with other things, too. He was a good thinker. He's a good talker. I, I can recall, you know, he went to prison. I can recall when he got out of prison, he came to visit me at WMAL, which is where you and I met and we were working. Mm-hmm. That was one of the first things he did. And he did that not, I wasn't the first person he saw, but it was a media thing. You know, let's go check out. He was laying the groundwork for another run for mayor. And that's what Mr. Cox was talking about, his ability to organize. So I saw it first. Well, and that brings up that's what another reason I mentioned the SNCC organization is because his ability to organize. And you saw that with the way that he outmaneuvered the people who were favored in 1978. I know we're talking ancient history here, folks, so forgive us for that. Yeah, but, but you need to know this. <laughs> but you need to know this. And that was that he was by no means was he the favorite going into the uh, primary. And it was a Democratic primary. That's all that mattered. And um, but he figured out how to organize and how to get it done. And that skill, that that organizational skill stayed with him his entire life. He was very good at that. I'm JJ Green and I'm black. I'm Chris Core and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. We we met on the same night in Philadelphia in, in uh, February of, of 1987. With our shot glasses full, we looked at each other and tried to size one another. We quickly adopted an all-world tradition that's become our own, looking into each other's eyes when saying cheers, salute. In that brief moment, we sense a common heartbreak. Latinos trying to understand America. We started talking about the wall as a central part of the conversation in the presidential election of the United States. Two prominent Latinos, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera and Alfredo Corchado, both authors, join us to help us understand what the Latin community is thinking as we enter a new presidential administration. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. 
As always, we really appreciate your listening and we would like you even more to participate and you can do that by emailing us any questions, comments, criticisms, um, anything that you think we need to read, we'd like to we'd like to hear from you, please do. Our email address is simple. It's the colors podcast, one word, the colors podcast at gmail.com. And also, before we go, we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Audrey Henson, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Earl Uriah Robinson, Ernie Green, Anjali Chong, the WTOP social team, Joey Rivera, Greg Christian, Julia Ziegler, Elena Fortney, Joel Oxley. For the music, Cosmic, Jesse Gallagher, Nana Quabena, and most of all, a big thank you to you for listening to us. And finally... Just remember to keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.